Hello, hello. Welcome to Novel Finds Podcast, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books, our favorite books, and everything in between. Hi, I'm Julia, and today we have Daniel Paisner, author of Balloon Dog and so many other books. How are you doing today, Dan? Good, Julia. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Um, I'm so excited. First of all, Balloon Dog has a beautiful cover on it, and so when it came through our inbox, I was like, ooh, this will be this will be a good one. And then that's Art Heist... It doesn't have a great cover. I love their covers. Color it's books. Gorgeous. Color books was a great indie press in Virginia, and I really was struck by the art design and the way they do their covers. So I was uh, I was very happy when those came to me from the artist that put them together. So good. I'm glad. I'm glad it turned the. I'm glad it did the trick for you guys. It definitely does. I mean, we obviously try not to judge a book by its cover, but when the cover is so pretty, you kind of have to, <laughs> right? Right, that's true. So um, could you give us a synopsis of Balloon Dog and maybe a little bit about yourself as an author? Balloon Dog is about a bungled art heist. It's really like a good old-fashioned caper novel. It's meant to be kind of dark, kind of funny, almost like a black comedy. Uh, but I started to wonder... Uh, sort of what would happen uh, if this ill-conceived art heist was underway uh, in plain sight? You know, what do you do with an industrial-sized sculpture that's worth possibly tens of millions of dollars uh, once you lift it off of its perch on the side of a mountain, you know, in front of this fabulous mountain home in Park City, Utah? What the hell do you do with that? How do you fence it? How do you how do you harness whatever value it may or may not have? Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the central question at the at the heart of the book. It seemed to me a good jumping off point where I can maybe examine uh, the meaning of art in our lives and and how we attach value. Why are are some books worthy of our shared attention and others not so much? Um, mm-hmm. So these are kind of issues I've been wrestling with as a struggling novelist in my own right, as you mentioned. I've written a whole bunch of other books. Most of my living and most of my output um, is as a ghostwriter or a collaborator. I help celebrated folks, athletes, actors, politicians. I help them write their autobiographies and memoirs. That's how I make my living. Um, how I keep my sanity is by writing uh, these widely underread books of my own. And Balloon Dog is the latest in the can. Oh, my gosh. Well, I can't wait to get into the ghostwriting portion because I'm just so curious. But I mean, Balloon Dog is great. How many other of your own books have you written? I've written a few non-fiction, non-fiction books of my own, long-form pieces of journalism. Balloon Dog is my fourth novel. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to come out of me every four or five years. Uh, but there is always one percolating, which is which is kind of nice. So when I'm spending my days writing books for other people, uh, in my idle moments, it's nice to have something to think about that doesn't concern these folks. Yeah. So the, the idea for this book, Balloon Dog, was probably the festering, maybe that's not the right word, germinating for um, uh, four or five years before I actually sat down and, and began writing. But this is novel number four. I love that. Um, so I know the title is meant for the the art structure that they are trying to steal. It is a giant balloon dog. But can you make any balloon animals? You know, like, is that a talent you have? In fact, Julia, I cannot. About the best I can do is with the right balloon, I can make like sausage links. <laughs> I can twist them up a few, okay. in a few spots. I could do that, but that's uh, that's where that's the length of my skill set, David. 
<laughs> oh, that's it's so fun. I my grandma used to be a clown, and so she taught me how to make balloon animals. So I was like, I can make a balloon dog. I know how to do that, or I mean, like, like a sword. Like, it's really quite a talent. I wish I could do that, but you know, it, I'm sure many of your listeners have kind of marveled over the years how these Jeff Koons balloon dogs have become so ubiquitous. I mean, they yeah. are coveted works of art. They're they're also kind of tchotchkes. You know, you'll see them in souvenir stores. Right, you know, just the, the mini versions the, of it. The icon of this balloon dog has become a part of, of the culture. And and I I can understand it on one level as as a, as a kind of cultural touchstone, as a little piece of kitsch. Mm-hmm. But I, I I can't understand it as a work of you know internationally revered art. You know, I know. That, that, I, I mean, these yeah. things sell for tens of millions of dollars, and <laughs> and there's something your grandmother could have made as a clown, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's remarkable. Uh, so in Balloon Dog. There are a couple of different narratives that it jumps between Lem and his his art heist. And then also, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but also just like another. Uh, Harrison, Harrison Clot. Yes, uh, thank He's the you. writer. He's the frustrated mid-list going nowhere writer at the heart of the story. Yeah, um, yeah. So. <laughs> um, so do you have a favorite line or section from the book, like in either of those or with both of those that you'd like to share? You know, I do have a favorite line and the book is told through sort of alternating points of view. There's Mm -hmm. Lem, as you mentioned, who's the bad guy who sort of puppeteers this this heist. Uh, There is Harrison, who is uh, the writer sort of through which we see all these comings and goings. Uh, He is, uh, I guess, not unlike myself, a middle aged writer looking for something to write about. And here he is thrust into the middle of a story that had nothing really to do with him that uh, he sort of feels uh, duty-bound to now tell. But there are also some other peripheral characters. There is Harrison Clark's wife. There is um, uh, a woman who is the object of Harrison Clark's online sort of fantasies or, or musings that he occupies his, his time when he's not working. Uh, my favorite moment, my favorite line from the book, I was actually glad that you were going to ask me that question because my favorite line was a throwaway line that amused the hell out of me and apparently nobody else. My editor actually wanted to cut it and I actually had to fight for it. So it's really a nothing line. It has nothing to do with the story, but I'll share it with you here since you asked, and it needs a little bit of setup. So this guy, Harrison Klott, the writer, um, is married to a woman who also shares the stage once in a while. She has her own point of view chapter or two throughout the book. She is a high school guidance counselor. She helps uh, rising seniors figure out their college plans. And one day she finds on her calendar a young girl who's a sort of clueless and aimless and has no real interests and she has no real talents. And and yet somehow her parents named her M-A-V-E-N, which she clearly seems not to be uh, in (laughs) in any realm. And um, so the authorial voice at one point in a nothing exchange between Maven and the guidance counselor, wife of one of our protagonists, I write, Maven inexpertly Now, that line amused the hell out of me. It does not amuse the hell out of anybody else. 
I'm thrilled that it survived into the final manuscript. And every time I thumb through this book before I do a library reading or bookstore reading and I come across that passage, I think, all right, I'm glad that's there. (laughs) (laughs) So I am now sharing that with your listeners. So thank you, Julia. I love that. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Maven inexpertly shrugged. (laughs) Nice. Oh, that is funny. Like, especially with the the context of it. Yeah, 100%. There you go. Okay. So do you have a favorite character in your story? Uh, You said that you were kind of related to Harrison a little bit, but is he your favorite? I I wouldn't say that. I kind of like them all. There is Mm -hmm. a, um, uh, there's sort of a cook-holded divorcee of this woman who's the object of Harrison's um, attentions online. Uh, is interesting to me. This is a woman who finds her husband, you know, in the garage cheating on her with another man, mm-hmm. which is I thought was kind of interesting. And and it's all about um, how she deals with that and how she um, kind of moves forward from a place of empowerment into the rest of her life. So I like her. I like the bad guy Lem. I mean, Lem is he's not educated, but he he works uh, for an art caller, and so he's. He's around, um, uh, you know, people of influence and people of means, and he spends his days moving these significant works of art and jewelry and valuables from one place to another. And I find him to be thoughtful and knowledgeable and, um, and purposeful. So even though he's a bad guy and he sets out to do a bad thing, I, I give him an opportunity, I think, in these pages to maybe redeem himself a little bit. And there's a nice friendship that forms uh, between him and Harrison Clark, the writer guy, who's... um whose worlds kind of collide on the back of this step. Yeah, I, I I really like Lem. I mean, I know he was supposed to be the bad guy, but I was just like, he he thinks of all the things, mostly. Um, and just the, the planning stages of stealing this giant piece of art that's outside in the elements and covered in bird poop and just all of this stuff. It just, I liked his, his narrative a lot. He's a bad guy with heart. Yeah. So when you started writing uh, or letting Balloon Dog percolate, uh, as you said earlier, what came first? What came first in terms of the story or in characters? Did something like hit you and you're just like, this is where I'm going with this? Or was it all just a bunch of little things that eventually snowballed into Balloon Dog? The thing that came first was the, the idea of the theft. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't quite know what to do with that idea. Um, you know, I didn't want to write an Elmore Leonard, Carl Hyacinth kind of book where, um, you know, it was all about these fringe characters who were trying to, um, you know, lift themselves up on, on the back of somebody else's uh, Ill, um, uh, or, or, or misfortune. So um, I, for a long time, I kind of toyed with where to take the story for that. And and as it happened, um, I uh, was in a situation not unlike the one that jumpstarts this book. I was I was actually visiting somebody, a friend of mine, uh, who happened to have a fabulous vacation home with a fabulous sculpture out front that was um, vulnerable to the elements. It was sort of a kinetic, mobile-type sculpture, so it needed to be moved before the season's turned. Um, And I happened to be there one morning when these art haulers came to cart this thing away. And, of course, they came with trucks, and there was a crane, and there were six or eight burly guys. And we had no idea these guys were coming. And we were a little bit drunk and a little bit stupid, and we kind of waved them along, and we were taking pictures and 
posing for selfies in front of the crane as they were lifting pieces of this world-famous sculpture from its mount on the ground. And it was about an hour into the enterprise where it occurred to somebody that we should actually call the homeowner who wasn't there with us at the time to see if these guys were legit. <laughs> of course, it turns out that they were legit and nobody told us, so that was fine. So we continued taking our selfies. But out of that uh, exchange, I thought, you know, gee, that's kind of interesting because you have this place where where the, the space between the haves and the have-nots gets, gets pretty narrow. You have these folks mm-hmm. who are hired to haul uh, this valuable artwork away someplace else out of sight where it can't even be seen or enjoyed for six months until it can then be returned to its perch. It just seemed that there were a lot of these moving parts that were coming together in just the right way that it that it called for a story. So I sat with that and noodled with that. And at some point, the story came to me. You know, you have these guys who who don't expect to see this happen, and it sort of happens right in front of them. What do you do with that at that point? So once that kind of clicked and fell into place, uh, I, I was a little bit off to the race. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that you actually had that experience and then uh, and then called. I don't know <laughs> that I would have thought to call the neighbor. I would have just watched it happen, and then they'd be like, where did the art go? Like, um, yeah, I thought then- it was there. <laughs> I <laughs> uh, I am not I'm not inviting you to my fabulous fabulous mountain home because you won't take, right, care, right. You won't take good care of my stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um so can you describe a day in the life when not necessarily when you're writing balloon dog, just like a day in the life when you're writing anything? You know, I find that there is uh, are, are different tools at play and different mindsets at play when I'm writing different kinds of books. For me, I mean, you probably had a lot of guests on this show uh, who, who write novels and they scratch at their head and they talk about writer's block and they wait for moments of inspiration and they have a little rain dance or different superstitions they need to do so the fiction gods smile upon them and, and the story finds them each day. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be the case a little bit when I sit down to write a novel, but when I sit down to write someone else a story, I don't really have that luxury. I have a deadline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's usually a publisher. There's usually uh, a team of people surrounding the celebrity I'm working with who are waiting for material. Um, and plus, this, I don't really have the need because the story has already been lived. The story, the story has already happened. So I don't have to sit there and you know, invent how to get from point A to point B because that's already on the page in some respect. My job is is really to focus on structure and pace and tone. Really more, um, uh, the, it, it really becomes more craft than art. Uh, so those days are um, are very purposeful. You know, I, I, I have an agenda. I try to cover a certain amount of ground and I make sure that I cover it. Yeah. Uh, but that's in the writing phase. There's also the kind of hunter-gathering phase. You know, if I'm going to sit down with an actress or an athlete, I need to learn the stuff of their life. I need for them to download their thought into my head so that I can write on their behalf. So mm-hmm. many of my days, if it's not a writing day, are, you know, many of those days are spent uh, researching or interviewing them, or, or maybe before COVID, traveling to where they are and trying to uh, insert myself in their lives in some way, and osmos whatever I can by kind of shadowing them as they do what they do and go about their days. Do you ever find um, like when you are re- when you are researching, when you are talking to them and trying to gather the information, uh, do they do, do any of them just kind of pause and maybe they don't want to share or are they all ready to just give everything to you? Well, um, uh, 
you know, on the face of it, I'm there because they're ready, right? We're mm-hmm. doing a book because they've chosen to do a book. And also presumably because a publisher has determined that they've lived a book-worthy life and they have something to say and, and will find an audience. Um, so the transaction, the scope of the transaction is sort of clear. When it comes down to the doing, though, there are some details that people might be reluctant to share. My job is to tease what I can from that mm-hmm. um, and to... Um, to help them to see how the truths that they share might land with readers. It's one thing to make a decision for yourself that you're going to write a warts and all memoir and come completely clean and and really, you know, uh, open a vein and spill your blood onto the page. But it's quite another to recognize that there's collateral damage very often uh, uh, to doing that. You know, there's family members, there are friends, there are, um, you know, former partners who who can um, be kind of hurt by the shrapnel that comes uh, on the page. So I try to get them to consider, you know, what's it going to be like to sit down around a Thanksgiving table mm-hmm. with these people after you trash the shit out of them? And, and right. um, so sometimes they have second thought. Yeah. Uh, the one the one thing I think uh, we can expect as readers when we sit down to write a memoir is the truth. So what I tell people that I'm working with is, look, you can you can keep certain things in the vault. You can decide what's fair game and what's for public inspection. But when you do choose to share something, an, an anecdote, a moment, a period of time from your life or career, you have to share that fully and openly and honestly, because a reader can kind of sniff out bullshit. You know, they, mm. can, they mm-hmm. can tell when you're piping the story a little bit or embellishing the story a little bit or holding something back a little bit. So if you're going to go there, you have to go there, I tell my clients. If it's too personal and if it's too raw or if it leaves you feeling too vulnerable, then you can leave it entirely on the cutting room floor. You just can't go there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So how did you get into ghostwriting? It seems like, like, did someone, is you're also a journalist, did someone read a column and be like, I want him to write my biography, autobiography? The very first one assignment sort of happened by happy accident. And mm-hmm. uh, I can see from our little Google Meets video, Julia, that you might be too young to remember who Willard Scott was. Willard Scott was the happy, jolly weatherman on the Today Show long before Al Roker was the happy, jolly weatherman on the show. But Willard Scott was a fixture at NBC News for generations. Um, Willard Scott was doing a book for Simon & Schuster. They contracted uh, for him to do a memoir, or uh, I don't even remember what, uh, what the book was. It wasn't quite a memoir, but in any event, he needed to write. Uh, and some folks at Simon & Schuster suggested that I go and meet with him and uh, because they wanted to match him with somebody who could help uh, bring his story across on the page. Willard was a good old boy from down south, and you know he didn't really care who he was working with. If this was the guy Simon Schuster sent over, that was fine with him. So by the time I left his office at 30 Rocket NBC that day, we were half in the bag. He poured us a couple of fifths of Jack Daniels, and we were chatting and hooting it up and having a good old time, and I left with a gig. So I was a freelance writer at the time. I was hustling for assignments, um, you know, writing for newspapers and magazines and making, you know, um, maybe a couple hundred dollars for a, for a placement and spending uh, as much time hustling for my next assignment as I was writing each assignment. So to walk out of there with a book contract and to have six months to a year to work on it, I was feeling pretty great because I could actually sit down at my desk and work. But I never, never thought that that would be a career. I thought it would just be a one-off. It would be my next freelance assignment. It happened to be a big one. But from there, I would go and, and go back to hustling newspapers. Paper and magazine. So 
lo and behold, that one book with Willard led to another and another. And here I am 35 or some ridiculous number of years later and 60 or 70 books later. And I am uh, still at it. It's excellent. Do you, so do you ever get nervous talking to these well-known people or is it just part of the job? Were you nervous at first and then you're now used to it or were, were you just never nervous about it whatsoever? No, no, I, think, I think that's accurate. I think, I think I was nervous at first because some of these folks were, were you know, big stars mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was a little intimidating to sit across from them. But I began to realize fairly early on uh, in this enterprise that um, they might have been as nervous as I was because, you know, they were embarking on this adventure and trusting me to be a good caretaker or shepherd for their story. So there was as much at stake on both sides of of the desk. So they had reasons to feel anxious. I had reasons to, to be anxious. And over time, I learned to um, to sort of find a way for both of us to shed that anxiety and just get right into it. So what I what I try to do now as much as possible, if, if our deadlines allow and our timelines allow, I try to make our first visits together and our first sessions together really not be about work. I'd rather meet somebody, maybe meet their family. Sometimes if I travel, I'll, I'll wind up staying in their homes. Mm-hmm. I sit down and have dinner with their kids and them. I go to follow them at work. If they're uh, maybe if they're an athlete, I'll, I'll go to the um, to the arena or the stadium and, and watch them play and meet them afterwards and go out for a drink with their teammates. So there are all kinds of ways that you can, um, you know, maybe mitigate some of that tension of a first meeting and, and begin to develop a rapport with someone before you actually begin working. I find that's useful both for the way our relationship will evolve, but it's also useful for me as a way to learn who they are and what they think and kind of the rhythms of how they speak. One of the things they're asking me to do is to transpose their voice onto the page. So in order for me to do that, I, I kind of have to get them. I sort of have to yeah. as them and, and move about the planet as them. So, yeah, you got to see them in the wild, see how they they interact with their natural habitat. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, So what or or who inspired you to start writing? I had some teachers early on who encouraged me, like going back to maybe middle school-ish or early high school-ish. And they told me I was good at it. And I never had any reason to think I was I was talented in this area. All I knew uh, as the doer of this thing was that it came easily to me and that everybody around me was kind of pulling out their hair and and stressing at the blank page. And for me, I would sit down and just knock out my five-page assignment on Moby Dick or whatever the hell it were, or a short story. This stuff would kind of come naturally. So once I got encouragement from uh, a teacher who presumably knew what it meant to write well, uh, and I coupled that with the idea that uh, you know there was no sweat or effort involved, and I was kind of lazy and it came easily, I figured, okay, maybe I could do this. But I had no idea what a career as a writer would look like. I had no idea how to monetize that. This was, you know, I got out of high school in the late 70s, which is sort of the post-Watergate era. So that was very much the the time uh, of the swashbuckling journalist and the Mm -hmm. investigative reporter. You know, the Woodward and and Bernstein um, myth was out there in the land. So I guess I wanted to work in a newsroom and, and write wrongs and uncover... Uh, hidden truths. Uh, so that's kind of the path I set off on. And it's not quite the path that found me, but um, that was the thought early on. Oh, heck yeah. 
I love that. You know, teachers are excellent ways to inspire kids to do, you know, what they're good at. I think that's so wonderful, um, just in general. But we're going to move into possibly the hardest question of the entire interview. Okay, I'm ready. Are you? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What is your all-time favorite book or books? No one one can ever answer with just one. Oh, man, that's a tough one. And, and you know, you did send along some questions before, and I do remember seeing that question, and I guess it was intimidating on the page, so I raced over it, and now I forgot about it, and now here it is again. <laughs> also intimidating. So I will uh, offer you a general answer. Okay. And then I will give you a specific answer. Perfect. Uh, so the general answer is I read a lot of Hemingway and Mailer when I was kind of coming of age or coming to the idea that I would try to make my bones as a writer. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I even took a couple of courses that twin the two of them. And we studied Hemingway and Mailer alongside each other, which was, which was kind of interesting. And there was something about the very sparse, very direct, kind of stripped down, staccato, short sentence rhythm of Hemingway's work that I found very appealing. And uh, I was at home with when I started writing uh, in, in newsrooms um, uh, and, and sort of uh, so I embraced that style of writing. Mailer was um, this sort of bigger than life personality off the page. Uh, You know, he pissed a lot of people off. He lived large and made a lot of noise. Uh, And yet on the page, he was able to come across in in many different ways. So if you look at his work early on in his career, it's got this sort of uh, kind of frenetic new journalism approach to what he was writing. And then later on, he was more measured. And, And one of the books he wrote towards the end of his life, I believe he won a Pulitzer Prize for The Executioner's Song, which was in many ways, a piece of ghostwriting. He came late to this enterprise. The book was about um, uh, uh, Gary Gilmore's quest, where he was seeking the death penalty for himself, as all these other public interest groups and human rights organizations were trying to block um, the ability to execute a prisoner who was sentenced to death in the state of Utah. Uh, And he was advocating on his own behalf that he wanted And Mailer came in after this documentary filmmaker had recorded all these interviews with Gilmore. Mailer came in late to the story and wrote this story almost from Gilmore's point of view. The book was a phenomenal success and quite a departure and almost unrecognizable from anything else I had ever read from Mailer. So uh, the two of them together, I thought, offered um, uh, a real short course or a long course in the breadth and scope of what a writer's life, a career could look like. So I was intrigued by that. The very favorite book is a specific book, and I I can't remember the title. Maybe we can look it up or you can put it in your show notes if you do that. It's a children's book called May I Bring a Friend? And it was gifted to me. My mother, who used to be a school teacher, was in the habit of giving her kids a book on her birth. So every year on her birthday, she would give us, uh, me and my siblings, a book. And she inscribed the book. And I kept that one over the years. That's the only one I have still with that inscription. And when my kids were little, I read that book to them. And now that they're uh, they're starting to have kids, I'm reading it to my grandchildren. So it's a really wonderful story um, mm-hmm. of, about friendship. And um, it's got sort of a silly sing-song rhyme pattern. And uh, so there you go. May I bring a friend and the naked and the dead. I love that. Oh my gosh. Those are two vastly different things. Yes. Vastly different things. So there you go. But that's excellent. Thank you. Um, So we're getting toward the end of 
our our episode. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners about anything or about Balloon Dog? My final thoughts are, are, are that each and every one of your listeners should go buy a copy of Balloon Dog. And as a special gift for your listeners, Julia, Balloon Dog is now on sale in ebook editions wherever you buy your ebooks, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere else, for ninety nine cents. So you can't really beat that. Ooh, yeah. The paperback is a little bit more, but it's still pretty reasonable. Um, but it's available for 99 cents. If you do read it, please let me know what you think. Post a, post a review. That's really meaningful in the indie author space. I'm sure a mm-hmm. lot of guests are uh, writing for independent presses. And the way to move the needle on the algorithms for books that are bought uh, online is, is really uh, to get some traction and to get some conversation going on Goodreads and elsewhere. So not just for my book, but for all the books you read, uh, you, your author's will appreciate it enormously if you just take the time and weigh in with a line or two about what that book meant to you. Even if you hate it, let us know why you hate it. (laughs) Um, So that would be my message. Read Balloon Dog. It's a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to write. And um, the real reason I do this stuff, I don't expect these books to kind of take off and make me the next Stephen King. Um, However, these books do get published uh, by meaningful publishing houses, and all I ever ask when I write a book is that I be invited back to the party to write another one. So my goal with Balloon Dog is that it finds enough traction among readers that a publisher is going to invite me back to the dance and say, okay, now go ahead and write another one. So that's my message. Oh, I love that. Yes. Word of mouth is so important with everything. Yes. Yes. Just all of that. I agree. So, Daniel, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on the social medias. I am on Twitter. I'm not sure. I should have, I should know this. I'm either Dan Paisner or Daniel Paisner at Twitter. That's where I'm most active. You can also find me on Facebook at Daniel Paisner Books. I am on Instagram also, uh, Dan Paisner or Daniel Paisner. Um, stupidly, pointlessly, I'm on TikTok. <laughs> at Daniel Paisner Books also. I haven't quite figured out that platform yet. And uh, you can hit me at my website, danielpaisner.com. I love that. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to find your TikTok. Uh, yes, please do. We, or, or please don't. One of the- yeah, no, we don't have a TikTok. We just have Instagram because TikTok is terrifying. So It really is terrifying. I don't get it at all, but I have, uh, you know, 20 something children, 30 something children. And they said, dad, you got to be on TikTok. So they, (laughs) they set me up and I don't get it, but there it is. (laughs) I love that journey for you. I hope you find your, your niche and somehow make it to frog talk because I made it on there at some point. I was just like, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) It's just videos of people with frogs. It's really, yeah, they could be fake frogs. They can be real frogs. It's, I don't know what videos I liked to send me into that algorithm, but it did. Okay. I will look for that. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for talking with us today, Daniel. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you, Julia. Pleasure to visit with you. (laughs) All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Well, we heckin' did it, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard and want to support the show, share it with your other bookish friends and family members. And if your podcast app has ratings, please take a minute to rate and review the show. I'm off to read the next book in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events for my monthly Patreon series, A Summary of Unfortunate Events, which is a middle-of-the-pool dive into the series we all know and love. 
And if you'd like to hear it, subscribe to our Patreon by following the link in the Novel Finds bio on Instagram, which you should totally be following if you're not already. Thanks again for being a novel friend. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.